Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. It has been a crazy week, and anyone who's been following the news has seen that it, it's just, just when you think the crazy couldn't get any crazier, it does. <laughs> um, oh my goodness, so much going on. But my guest this week is my friend, friend of the show, Ellie Honig. He's a CNN legal analyst, also former federal prosecutor over at the Southern District of New York and in New Jersey. And um, whenever Bill Barr is in the news and and doing something of significance, I like to bring Ellie on because he gives a no-nonsense straight take on what the hell is happening because of his longtime experience working uh, for the Justice Department under four different attorney, attorneys general and under two different administrations, both Bush and Obama. So Ellie's going to join me in a little bit. And it is a fun, fantastic conversation. Ellie's from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. So we bond automatically with our Jerseyness. But he's a fantastic legal analyst and he breaks it down in layman's terms so you can understand um, what the significance really was of Bill Barr's testimony recently in front of the Judiciary Committee, which in my opinion um, was a disaster. How did Ellie feel about it? Um, He'll let you know. So stay tuned for my interview with Ellie Honig coming up in a bit to explain some of that Bill Barr nonsense. In the meantime, uh, you know, it's just like, where do I start? It's exhausting. Here we are, we're heading into August and we are less than 100 days from November 3rd, from Election Day. And the polls look terrible. Uh, um, Trump knows this. And he is trying to do all kinds of things to distract and just continue to sow chaos, right? If you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know I use the term the chaos chronicles often. Well, there's a couple more chapters that have been added to the chaos chronicles this week including the president's interview with Axios, with Jonathan Jonathan Swan of Axios. Uh, An excerpt of it was released where he's finally asked in a sit-down interview about the Russian bounty story. I've mentioned this before a couple weeks ago when it first came out, how infuriating this was because it was another example of the president of the United States selling out our country, more specifically our troops on the ground in Afghanistan, to Russia. This has happened how many times now? And here was another blaring example. What was the story? The New York Times broke a story that said that it had been put in the president's daily briefing earlier this year that the Russians were paying the Taliban to kill American soldiers. Now, the president tried to say he didn't know anything about this. I don't know. I didn't know. What? What? But it was in his daily briefing. And of course, people in the intelligence community, when the president tried to throw them under the bus to say that, oh, I didn't know anything about this. I wasn't briefed. They were like, people leaked and said, bullshit. It was in his PDB. But he doesn't read his PDB. We all know this. The president doesn't freaking read. So there was some dispute over whether um, this was, um, you know, a top priority. There was some dispute in the intelligence community about whether they were directly paying bounties or if this was just Russia continuing what they always do. And it is well known. It is known and it has been known that Russia has been involved in 
the Middle East, in Syria, in Afghanistan, trying to do anything they can to get a foothold in the region and to undermine the United States. Why? Because they're our freaking enemy. And that's what enemies do. Right. This isn't news. Russia has not become our friend all of a sudden. It's not like it's Japan. Russia is still our enemy and they are actively trying to destroy America from within <laughs> Russia meddling in our elections, etc. But they also do this stuff around the world, not just with us. They do it in Germany and other places. And Donald Trump has been a gift to Vladimir Putin's dream since he was a KGB agent back in the 80s. Of, of reconstituting the Soviet Union and having dominance and undermining the United States. Donald Trump has been the greatest gift to Vladimir Putin's hegemonic dreams. Not only has Russia not paid a price at all, really, for their, for their meddling in the 2016 election, there's no acknowledgement of what they're doing again in the 2020 election, which they're doing. And there has been zero penalty of significance for what they've been doing around the world. As a matter of fact, the president of the United States announced that he wants to withdraw 12,000 troops from Germany. Another gift to Vladimir Putin. The less presence the United States has in that part of the world, the more Russia can come in and have influence. Let's not forget, Vladimir Putin was a KGB agent in Dresden when the Berlin Wall fell. This is something that I'm sure they were toasting their shots of tequila when Trump made this announcement. And why? Well, simply because he doesn't like Germany. He doesn't like uh, Angela Merkel because she's a strong woman, smarter than he'll ever be. And we already know how he feels about strong women, women in general. So this is just an F you. He uses this nonsense about NATO and Germany not paying enough. From the, there are no fees for NATO. There is a set percentage where they say, listen, this is the goal. These countries should, use, should pay 2%. I forget what it is of their GDP should go toward um, helping to fund NATO in order to protect that part of the world from Russia and aggression. Hello, that's why NATO was formed. And Trump has this bug up his ass where he says that we're being taken advantage of because the U.S. Pay pays the most and the, the, the European countries aren't and blah, 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 blah. You know, look, there's some merit to not enough countries pay enough of their, quote, fair share, but not enough to dismantle and weaken the NATO alliance, and especially not with Germany, which is strategically incredibly important, especially in beating back German um, Russian aggression. So this is just another example of Donald Trump being completely unfit to be commander in chief and how it has real world consequences for our standing in the world, for our military and for our strategic partnerships and alliances. It's freaking insane what this president is doing to our country. And during the Jonathan Swan interview, he was finally asked head on about this. You know, he said, listen, you had a call recently with Vladimir Putin. Did you bring up the uh, Russian bounty issue? And Trump was like, what? No, I'm not. I didn't bring that up. Why? No. And, 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 and then it, he never really answered the question directly. He basically acknowledged that he doesn't believe the intelligence and then turns it around and says, well, you know, the Russians, what, what do they want to be meddling in Afghanistan for? You know, they lost already there in the 80s. And when we were there, we did the same thing. Once again, trying to draw some type of moral equivalence to what the United States is doing and what Russia is doing. You know how many times he's done this? This is not the first freaking time. 
Remember, he said, oh, well, we kill people, too. I'm talking about human rights violations and and things and being questioned about why he hasn't challenged Russia and other authoritarian regimes on certain things. Well, we do it, too. Really? Just so you know, that is a Russian talking point. Trying to put us on the same level as these murderous, tyrannical regimes. Russian media does this all the time. And Donald Trump just hands them, hands them the fodder. Unbelievable infuriating, absolutely infuriating. And I really hope that he doesn't get away with this because this story gets lost a little bit in all the other freaking insanity that's going on with our country. But this is critically important. We are voting for the next commander in chief this November 3rd. And I guarantee you, however you feel about Joe Biden's other policies, I don't agree with him on many of them, but I know that he would never sell our military sell them out like this or sell our country out like this to our freaking enemies. You've got to be kidding me. For the fact that, just one last thing on this, the fact that Donald Trump would try to play coy and act like he doesn't know about this or this is somehow in dispute that Russia, maybe not the specifics of the paying the bounties that that's that the intel community is arguing over the specifics of that. But there is no doubt it is indisputable that Russia has been meddling in Afghanistan, particularly on the side of the Taliban. How do we know this? Because if you go back to 2018, when John Nicholson, the four star general, was the commander over there overseeing the operations in Afghanistan, he made it abundantly clear He said so in an interview. He said, we've had weapons brought to our U.S. headquarters by Afghan leaders, and they've said this was given to us by the Russians to the Taliban. He said that in 2018. You know who else said that and backed that up? General Mattis, when he was SECDEF, Secretary of Defense. So this is not this is not news. But Trump can't find it to criticize his his buddy, his lover over there, Putin infuriating. It's disrespectful to our troops. And this is another reason why anytime Donald Trump tries to use our our honorable men and women in the military as political props, I just go crazy and we should not let him get away with it. It's completely unacceptable and it's disgraceful. Disgraceful. Unbelievable. What else is disgraceful? Well, what's disgraceful is we've now reached 150,000 deaths and counting in the United States due to covid And this president, people thought, oh, well, he struck a new tone. He's acknowledging the importance of wearing masks now. And because two, he brought the coronavirus briefings back, right? This just him, though. No doctors anymore. No Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci or any of the medical experts. No, it's just him because he can't do his rallies anymore, right? So he gets off on these briefings. And he was reading from his script and kind of struck a more let's say less crazy tone because it wasn't his words. It was somebody else's. So, you know, there are many of us who are like to hell with this new tone stuff. There's never going to be a new tone. He does this all the time. He sounds somewhat sane for like half a minute. And then he just goes right back to tweeting crazy shit and saying crazy things and going back to who he really is because he can't help it. I finished the Mary Trump book, by the way, and I'm telling you, It is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable how screwed up emotionally Donald Trump is. If you haven't read the Mary Trump book, I suggest you do, because it really puts in perspective 
what a sociopath Donald Trump is, and he will never change. This is who he is. He's a danger to our country. And if you are not already motivated or dedicated to making sure you vote and get other people to vote and hold your officials accountable to make sure there's, you know, voter integrity, please <laughs> let it, you would understand why. Um, He's as screwed up as he is. That and also my last guest's um, book, Demago- uh, The Demagogue President by Professor Jen Murcia is another um, really instructive book into how Donald Trump speaks and why and the tactics that he uses. I'm telling you, it really puts it all in perspective. You'll be a lot smarter for it. Trust me. Um, but anyway, he's the, so he's back to the, to the COVID briefings and they have gone off the rails again. Yes, maybe Trump had what I say, one or two briefings where he sticked, stayed to the script and didn't say anything batshit crazy. Yeah, well, that all went out the window once he gets on his Twitter feed. We all know this. And he does, he uses his Twitter feed often to distract from other things going on too. But what did he do now? Well, we've got, the argument is still raging over what to do with schools. The cases are still going up. I think it's 42 states now that have a rise again in coronavirus cases. And you still have these idiots arguing over masks. Representative Louis Gohmert, speaking of idiots, recently tested positive for coronavirus. How do we find out? Well, well, because he was supposed to fly with Trump to Texas. And they test anyone who's near Donald Trump or gets on Air Force One beforehand, including the Secret Service agents. Everybody gets tested. And he tested positive. Well, what a freaking shocker. He's one of the guys that runs around Capitol Hill and everywhere else with with hardly with a mask on hardly at all. And he was one of those that said, well, if I get it, then I'll wear a mask. No, you idiot. The point is not to get it because you could be asymptomatic and being a super spreader, especially flying on airplanes and in Congress. And, you know, I got to say something about Louis Gohmert. When I worked on Capitol Hill, Louis Gohmert and other members of Texas, I worked for a California congressman, but I got to know a bunch of congressmen from Texas because of my work on the commutation case for border agents Ramos and Compion. And I've made some reference to this effort, and I, I say I was the Aaron Brockovich of that case, if anyone's ever seen the movie Aaron Brockovich, where Congressman Rohrabacher gave me carte blanche to use the powers of his office to help these two Border Patrol agents who were unjustly imprisoned for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler and not filing the proper paperwork to report it. That's the basics of it. It's a very complicated case, but those are the basics. For two and a half years... I dedicated the majority of my time on Capitol Hill, juggling all the other things I did to helping get these guys out of prison. And we needed um, a presidential pardon or commutation to do it at that point because they'd been sentenced to 11 and 12 years because of mandatory minimum sentencing. My work on that case also opened my eyes to to the need for criminal justice reform in a lot of areas, from mandatory minimum sentencing and a lot of other things that I was naive to prior to working on that case. Anyway, so I, those guys, they were from Texas. And so I got to work with a lot of different Texas congressmen, including Louis Gohmert's office. And he, you know, he was always a little on the fringe with things, but he was the nicest guy. I spent a lot of time in Texas working on this case and he would always be super nice to me and jovial and we would joke and he was really instrumental in putting pressure on the Bush administration. We ultimately did secure the commutation, Um, but um, it was Bush's final act in office, one of them. And I was very proud of that moment. But anyway, 
Um, and, and so when I look at like, he's another one of those congressmen who I had no idea was that horrible because were they always that horrible? You know, one of my best friends was a, a colleague of mine in the office with Congressman Rohrabacher, where we were all very close. It was a very close, close knit office. And I'm still friends with um, many of my colleagues from my time on Capitol Hill. And one of my best friends is, uh, you know, we met in that office and him and his wife and his wife still works on Capitol Hill. He's now a lobbyist for a healthcare company. And his wife is still a congressional staffer for another member, Republican. And we talk all the time and we ask each other, we always say, thank God he's, you know, he's sane and hasn't jumped on the Trump train or else we wouldn't be friends anymore. (laughs) I've already lost one other best friend as a result of this stupid Trump BS. But anyway, so we talk all the time and we, we have a group chat with another one of our former staffer friends. And we're like, were they all this batshit crazy then? And we just didn't realize it because we were in it. Or like, is it that the Trump era just allowed the crazy and the obnoxious jerk offs that they've all become? Was that always there? And it's just kind of has been empowered now because of Trump. I don't know. But Gohmert was one of those people who I'm just like, really? You And he not only did he, as he said and done, just really obnoxious, horrible things during this whole Trump nightmare. But this corona, this latest coronavirus incident has really kind of shaken Capitol Hill and allowed more people to speak up, sort of. His, do you know that his staff sent, um, an, an, I don't know if it was anonymous, but they didn't put their name to it. They sent a note to Jake Sherman of Politico, basically saying, um, thank you for reporting on this because we did not know that the congressman was positive for coronavirus until your report in Politico came out. I hope you also include the fact that he made all the staff come to work, have full staff in the office, and how we were berated if we wore masks. Really? And guess what? That opened the floodgates for other staffers in Republican offices to send stories to Jake Sherman saying how they've experienced some some of the similar things where they're encouraged not to wear a mask and how they were supposed to be an example to America of how you can reopen. How asinine and dangerous. And Jake Sherman said in Politico, keep your stories coming. I'm getting stories from Republican offices, from senior administration officials about how they do not feel safe going to work in this environment. This is outrageous. These people are freaking outrageous. And what does Donald Trump do? He doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a damn about the health of the American people. He doesn't give a damn about our kids, our military, our frontline workers. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. And you know what he does? Instead of being responsible, right? Because he's not capable of this. He's retweeting lunatics, absolute lunatics. I'm sure by now, And if you haven't heard about this, you're about to hear about it now. I'm sure by now, many of you have heard that the president retweeted a video of a woman from Texas named Dr. Stella Emanuel. She's a black woman from Africa who came to the U.S. And not only is she a a, a doctor, which I just can't believe this woman has a medical license. I don't know for how much longer, but she has some kind of ministry. And what are some of the things that she preaches in this ministry? She actually preaches that women who have gynecological problems, right, fibroids or miscarriage or endometriosis, things like that, it's a result of having demon sex in their dreams that these they, they fantasize about 
Hollywood celebrities or or pop stars and they these demons come in their dreams and impregnate them or deposit these cancerous cells. And that's the reason that women have these problems and that a woman was it was impregnated with demon semen and became pregnant. And then she came to this ministry and she prayed for her and the demon child from the demon semen went away. I shit you not, this is real. You can Google it. You can see the videos. This is the woman that this freaking president retweeted a video of because she was, it was her and a bunch of other doctors that are trying to push hydroxychloroquine. It's back in the news again. They had a, a rally in Capitol Hill and she was there saying how she's treated 300 people with hydroxychloroquine. It's a cure and don't wear masks and that shit, irresponsible stuff. The president retweets her. His son retweets her. Breitbart News features her. 14 million views on on Facebook, for God's sakes, before they took the video down. They suspended Don Trump Jr.'s, uh, Don Jr.'s Twitter account for 12 hours as a result. Not the president's, though, of course. This is the kind of shit. And once it came out, how lunatic. Oh, she also talked about how there's alien DNA being used and how there's like a reptilian aliens or something in, in public, uh, uh, public officials. I I, just, I'm telling you, I never in my life thought that I'd be having a conversation in public or hearing it said out of the mouths of legitimate news reporters, the term demon sperm or demon semen. I don't think anybody had that term on their Trump bingo card for 2020. It's absurd. And when he was confronted about it, God bless Caitlin Collins, the the kick-ass CNN White House reporter, for asking him about this the next day. And what does he say? Well, I I thought what she had to say was great about hydroxychloroquine, and that's all I know. I don't really know anything about her. And she pushed him. You know, this person preached this, and they have videos touting X, Y, and Z, and alien DNA. And he's like, well, I, you know, I, I thought she was highly respected and and, uh, you know, I liked what she had to say about hydroxychloroquine. And, the, and then he, when pressed on it, he ended the, the briefing and walked off because he couldn't handle heat. But he doubles down. He was asked again on one of his trips, you know, one of those freaking helicopter press briefings when he's walking out to the helicopter, which is so annoying. And again, he doesn't condemn this. He doesn't step away from it. No, he doubles down. Well, 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 what she had, I thought what she had to say was, was good and blah ignoring the fact that she's a quack. This is the president of the United States. Tens of thousands of Americans are dying from coronavirus because of the failed response of this president and this administration. And this freaking guy is defending his support of a doctor who advocates that demon sperm impregnates women in their dreams. Okay. Welcome to 2020 people. (laughs) How irresponsible. I just, and the polls are reflecting, I think, finally, that the president, that the people are just having, have had enough of this guy, right? That's now. I mean, if the, if the, if the election were held today, Donald Trump would lose in a landslide. I don't doubt that. But the, but we are still 90 plus days away from the election and anything can happen. So I'm not, we cannot rest on our laurels. The Biden campaign cannot just keep playing it safe. I mean, do no harm. I get that. But uh, they cannot just 
sit there and hang on to their lead and try to run out the clock. I know that's what they're trying to do, but it's only going to get worse. It's only going to get worse with the stuff that Trump and the campaign will do. I'm sure some of you have seen the ads, depending on where you live and depending on what cable news channel you watch. The ads trying to tie Joe Biden to defunding the police and this idea of crime and you know, and trying to scare people into believing that this is America. This is going to be uh, the, the America under Joe Biden. Well, these dumbasses you used footage from Trump's America. This is what's happening under Donald Trump, you fools. And he's using these extrajudicial me- methods of sending out federal troops to places like Portland. And now they're talking about expanding that. And they're engaging in really... Um, troubling behavior. Now, I'm not saying that what's going on in Portland with these crazies out there trying to burn down a courthouse and the vandalism and the violence that they're encouraging that that Antifa crew, but that's just a small pocket and the local authorities should have handled it and they haven't. And so they're not helping the situation. But the way that the feds have been sent in And what's going on there and the way that they are attacking peaceful protesters and stuff, that's not okay either. So the Biden campaign better find a way to thread this needle where they are emphatic about they are not in favor of defunding the police and that and that American cities and neighborhoods are not going to be unsafe and filled with crime if he becomes president. They've got to push back on this because the Trump people are they are pushing that narrative big time that and Biden's cognition, you know, and I think that's a losing, that's a losing argument because Biden is, yes, he's not the Biden of, of 10, 12 years ago, but he's all there and certainly more all there than Donald Trump. Biden can put a full sentence together at least. So, I mean, come on. Well, most of the time. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. Biden has a stutter. Let's let's just, you know, not overlook that, that he's overcome most of his career. What's Donald Trump's Donald Trump's excuse? He's just a moron and a sociopath. And what has he done now? He is back trying to distract from the fact that, again, 150,000 Americans have died and are and counting and that coronavirus has been a complete failure for him. Running around calling it the China virus. He takes no responsibility, tweeting out batshit crazy stuff. And then uh, at 8.46 a.m. on July 30th, he tweets out, let's delay the election. Mail-in balloting, that's going to that's fraudulent. And it's going to be inaccurate. So why don't we delay the election? And of course, people went nuts. And they should have. Because he's now crossed the Rubicon. Okay? He is now in the territory of authoritarian dictator type actions. By even suggesting that he can delay the election is crazy. And it's unconstitutional. It's against federal law. Let me say this very clearly. Okay. I know there are a lot of people, I get people tweet at me all the time on social media because this is not the first time this has come up, right? I think it's the first time where he's been this direct about delaying the election. He's always kind of hinted around it and implied it. But let me be very clear to people who are scared about this. Donald Trump has zero authority to delay the presidential election on November 3rd. Zero authority. 
the Constitution has said clearly in Article 2, it empowers Congress to choose the timing of our general elections. Okay? The Constitution empowers Congress to do that. The president has zero authority in this area. Now, what else doesn't give Trump the authority to do this? Federal law passed in 1845. Two U.S. Code Section 7 clearly says that the election is held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November on even years, even years. Since 1845. So it would require Congress, which means the House and the Senate would both have to agree to change of the federal law to change the date of the election. That's not happening. And that's never happening. Short of a terrorist attack on election day, I don't see Congress doing this ever. Democrats would never do this and you would need 60 votes in the Senate. So this is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Rest assured, this is not going to be possible. Now, the states control the elections, not the federal government. What about some states, right? We've seen, well, states change their primaries because of COVID, right? So why can't they change? They cannot change the general election. Primary dates, they can. General election, they cannot It's constitutionally mandated, just like Inauguration Day is constitutionally mandated for January 20th at noon. So even if Donald Trump tried to pull some kind of scheme where if he loses and he doesn't leave, Nancy Pelosi would then be president interim anyway, which is a whole nother thing. But they have to be out. He's got to be out of the White House by noon on January 20th. I don't see the Supreme Court upholding anything that would that would <laughs> allow Donald Trump not to have to be out. So I'm telling you, the likelihood of this is zilch, okay? So we have never changed the presidential election. We've survived the Civil War and two world wars and still held the presidential election when it was supposed to be. So please... Rest assured, but don't be distracted by Donald Trump trying to, this is where the danger is. Don't be distracted by his, his um, tactic of undermining the integrity of the election. He wants to create this environment where people don't accept the election results. That's what this is really about. And our republic, our, de- our democratic constitutional republic here hinges on the faith of the people in our processes. And that's what he's trying to attack. He also uses this back and forth about mail-in balloting versus absentee balloting. Um, If you listen regularly to my podcast, you know that I had um, a podcast dedicated to this a couple months ago with Ron Brownstein. I think it was episode 61, where we talk in depth about this. And that it's actually safe. Voting by mail is safe. Does voter fraud occur? Yes, but very infrequently, five states have all mail-in voting already in place, and they've had great success with it. Hawaii, Colorado, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Washington State. For example, Washington State, you want to talk about fraud? 
3.1 million votes cast, 142 improper votes cast. 142 out of 3.1 million votes. That's it. It's like 0.004%. I'll take those odds. The Heritage Foundation, the Conservative Heritage Foundation, they did a study that said out of 250 million votes cast over the last 20 years, there's only been 1,285 confirmed cases of voter fraud. 1,285 out of 250 million. You know what that comes out to? 0.00054%. Okay? This is not a thing. But Donald Trump wants to convince people it's a thing because more people and more states are implementing mail-in voting because of coronavirus. So I think it's up to something over 30 something states now allow mail-in balloting. So you have absentee versus mail-in balloting. What's the difference? The difference is this absentee ballots, which Trump say are good. Okay. Absentee ballots are basically like you have to have an excuse for why you can't go vote in person. Right. So if you are out of the country, you're a student, um, different states have different requirements for getting for requesting an absentee ballot so you can mail it in because you cannot go to the polls physically. Other states have no excuse absentee balloting where you can just request one and vote by mail if you want. All mail in balloting is every registered voter gets a ballot mailed to them and they mail it back. Or they can drop it off at like designated receptacles, which is what they do in those five states I talked about before. That's the difference. Fundamentally, at this point, there's really no difference between mailing in and absentee balloting. It's just a matter of process, right? Well, why does Trump say that absentee balloting is good, but mail-in balloting isn't? Playing semantics here. Because he voted by absentee ballot. Because most of the military votes by absentee ballot. It's mandated by law that every state has to mail their military folks who are stationed overseas absentee ballots. So he doesn't want to offend the military because that's the first thing people would say. Well, why do you have a problem with absentee ballots? Our military does it with no problem all the time. So be mindful. That's why he makes that distinction. And because many people in his administration vote by absentee ballot. Trump's own administration, remember when he tried to set up that voter fraud commission right after the election where he claimed erroneously that that millions of people voted fraudulently or else he would have won the popular vote? Six million or some kind of crazy number, right? That was all a bunch of bullshit. And he knew it. And he even went so far as to set up this bogus commission. Well, that commission lasted all of, I think, not less than a year. For a number of reasons, they disbanded. But one of the main reasons was that they couldn't find any freaking voter fraud. <laughs> so this is a ruse, folks. It's a ruse. Don't get sucked in. If you don't want to go to the polls, request a mail-in ballot and mail in your ballot. It may not take, we may not know the results. If it's close, we may not know the results on election day. And that's okay. But that doesn't mean that the, that, that the uh, election was fraudulent. Don't fall for the okie doke, please, because our our republic depends on this, depends on people believing in the integrity of the elections. So that leads me to Bill Barr. Bill Barr was asked about the president during his testimony, during his hearing this week, which is what I'm going to bring Ellie Honigid to talk about in a minute. He was asked straight up about this. Can the president delay the election? 
And he actually hedged on this. Well, um, I haven't really thought about it. I'm like, There's nothing to think about. It's clear. I laid it out to you. I gave you this federal statute. I told you what year it was passed. I told you where it is in the Constitution. And there's also Supreme Court precedent for this, too, um, with Truman and what de- what's determined as emergency powers. Like, can, what if there's an emergency? Can it, it's pretty clear that the president does not have the authority to do this. But Bill Barr hedged. Why? Because he was under oath. And if he would have said under oath, no, the president can't do this, then guess what? The president wouldn't have license to tweet this kind of crazy shit out because people would automatically turn around and say, yeah, but your own attorney general said that you can't do this. So why are you bringing this up? Bill Barr is an accomplice in this. He's a disgrace. He should be impeached as attorney general, although that unfortunately won't happen. But he is one of the most, I think, dangerous people in this country because he enables Trump to do a lot of things under the law, questionably in the gray areas of the law that he would never be able to get away with if he had an honest attorney general who was actually working for the betterment of the people of the United States for equal justice under the law. So that's a good segue into bringing in my next guest, Ellie Honig, so we can talk a little bit more about Bill Barr and his congressional testimony this week and what that means for this country. Next up, my friend Ellie Honig. Well, it's always a pleasure to have friend of the podcast, Ellie Honig, back on the program. He is a CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor. Uh, He worked in the Southern District of New York. He worked in the state of New Jersey. He's prosecuted some pretty bad apples, knows what he's talking (laughs) about. And he is my fellow Jersey guy. We are buddies and he is a friend of the show. Like I said, I'm happy to have him back to talk all things Bill Barr. Ellie Honig, welcome back to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Tara, thank you for having me. I'm honored that I've achieved official friend of the show status. <laughs> I, I take that seriously, and I hereby accept thank the you. honor. Um, and I well look deserved. forward to a, a therapeutic venting session about the <laughs> not just Bill Barr, but the hearing itself. Oh, honey. oh God. <laughs> Ellie, this has been just exhausting. Everything about this administration is exhausting. <laughs> it really is, you know, but I feel like Since Bill Barr has shown up, there's been kind of a turn in how dangerous this administration has become. And we always knew that there were problems before. But but is Bill Barr the most dangerous man in America? Boy, it's hard to rank who's the most dangerous. (laughs) But I but I will say this. Bill Barr, I think when, when we look back on all this, we will see that Bill Barr was was a necessary accomplice to many of the abuses that this administration has attempted and pulled off. And if we're looking ahead, and I'm sure we'll talk about this too, what else could be coming down the road? Donald Trump's going to need Bill Barr at his right hand mm-hmm. if he's going to get away with some of the more outrageous potential uh, potential abuses of power that are out there, including relating to the election. But look, I, I want to just make sure your listeners understand first for perspective. Bill Barr is different not in degree, but in kind from any attorney general we've had, certainly in my career as a prosecutor going back you know, 20 years or so. I mean, I served at DOJ under 
four years under the Bush administration, we had three different Republican appointed AGs, Ashcroft, Alberto Gonzalez, and then Michael Mukasey, and then four years under the Obama administration, Eric Holder. And it was nothing, nothing like what we're seeing now. I don't care which party you're talking about. Bill Barr is completely different from those AGs. The way – first of all, the way he is – he has – uh, compromised his own credibility and DOJ's credibility. I mean, the number of times Bill Barr has been publicly called out by Robert Mueller, by federal judges, by other prosecutors for lying is outrageous. And the degree to which Bill Barr has politicized DOJ is also outrageous. And I don't care if Bill Barr gets behind a microphone at this hearing and declares himself righteous and angelic and independent. Bull. I mean, look at his record over 18 months. I mean, too late. You can't just declare everything I've done is cool. It's not. And his record speaks for itself. Now, I think the Democrats failed to properly deploy that ammo against Bill Barr. Without question, because, uh, you know, I follow I follow you on on Twitter because I'm always yeah. interested in what you have to say, because obviously you have no problem expressing yourself. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> As, uh, neither do I, which is why we get along. Um, right. But I. I was curious to see if you were as frustrated as I was, um, even me as the non-lawyer watching that, um, for someone like you, who's, who is a DOJ veteran, um, watching that, uh, I looked at it from a political perspective. I worked on Capitol Hill for seven years. I've sat through many hearings. I've prepared congressmen for questioning. Um, and I just, I'm like, did you people not do your homework? Bill Barr telegraphed what he was going to say. He telegraphed what his posture was going to be ahead of time. Yet the Democrats just fell so short of holding his feet to the fire and effectively questioning him the way a prosecutor would. And there were a couple of those that were on the on the panel who were effective. But what was the most frustrating part for you? So a couple things. First of all, the format just sucks. I mean, this five minute format is really hard to do any serious damage on. And what the what the Democrats should have done, and they did this to some extent during impeachment, get together and say, okay, there's however many 21 of us. I don't know the exact number. I think it's about that on this committee. We're going to divvy up 21 topics or, you know, maybe subdivide, but but divide it up into specific pieces. Um, That's number one. Number two is. The quality of the questioning was particularly early on with the more senior members was was terrible. It was right. garbage. It got better. It was, yeah, it did get better. And I will say this. There's a lot of talent sort of deeper on that bench. The, the more you go in, the more junior you go, almost, <laughs> it seems the questioning is better. I mean, look, Jerry Nadler's really, really bad at this. He just yeah, is. He is. And, and Cohen's not very good at it. And um, some of the other more senior members are not great at it. But when you get into the Swalwell, the Hakeem Jeffries, the Representative Jayapal, uh, uh, Val Demings, Nagoose, they're good. There's a lot of talent in, in, the, in the junior ranks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of this committee. The problem, though, and this is more of a political problem, is how many people were still watching by right. then? I mean, that's right. Right. I mean, start off with the fact that we had an hour and change delay because poor Jerry Nadler, I mean, sympathy for him, but like, he can't it's win. so Mr. Magooish of him that of course <laughs> he gets an offender bender on the way. I know he wasn't driving and I'm, right. thank goodness nobody was hurt, but like, if I told you somebody's going to get an offender bender on the way and it's going <laughs> to, you would go, it's definitely Nadler, right? Um, so, you know, 
so it's already delayed an hour and change. Then you have all this garbage up front and, and Nadler's all over the map and Cohen's all over the map and Jim Jordan shrieking into the mic and Barr's giving his defiant opening speech. I mean, how many people you, by this point, it was supposed to start at 10. By this point, it's it's past lunchtime. And by the time you got to the good questioners, it's one one thirty two. I mean, how people, many people right. People were yeah. already turned off by how god awful the first part of the hearing was. Right. I, you know, I saw on Twitter, even people who are interested in this were like, I can't. I'm, I'm yes. done. I can't do it after the, you know, the Jim Jordan video oh, that that was yeah. played, which was just completely inappropriate. The way I wanted, yeah. Oh, I wanted to. I was screaming at the television, and I'm like, how were the Democrats not prepared for this? How many times yeah. have the oh. Republicans? outperformed them with the drama. I mean, they all know what's coming. It's not like it's the first freaking hearing with these guys. Right. And they didn't have their own their own video, at least by the second half of the hearing. Then why didn't they go get an intern to go put together a quick right. mashup of like police brutality and people getting hurt during these, you know, getting getting yeah. um, uh, brutalized by police not acting correctly. Why did they have that? They could have come back with it if that was the way they wanted to go. But no, yep. they let it go unanswered, which was something that really pissed me off too. And that whole thing with Jim Jordan's video is just a perfect example of how weak and unprepared the Democrats are and how over the top and abusive the Republicans are. Right. Unfortunately, that's not really a fair fight, but that's in Congress. There's really no referee. It's not like in court where you have a judge saying, no, that objection sustained. Sit down, counsel. Here's the thing. How does Jerry Nadler even allow them to hit play on that video? Or if they do hit play, 30 seconds in, you go, no, 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 hold on. He had no idea how long that thing was. I'm sitting there watching it. I'm like, if Jim Jordan really wanted to, he could have a 90 minute video, right. you know, queued up here that's going to yeah. air on all the major networks for the next hour and a half. Yeah, was, And Nadler's just this? sitting there. Yep. I mean, yep. I don't know how we let him finish that. At, at minute three or four, I would have been like, okay, That's I'm enough. the chair of this committee. Right. You didn't You didn't give us the advance notice on this. I'm stopping this. You want to submit it through the internet? Go ahead. But w no way. No way we're doing this. Right. You're not how does use Nadler this, sit there? Right. You're not going to use this committee to be a, a, an extension of the Trump campaign propaganda yeah. arm. So I'll go yeah. use YouTube for that. But that's not going to happen here. And like right. I said, you know, I've sat through hundreds of hours of committee hearings both with Republicans in power and out of power. And I'm telling you, the Republicans would never allow Democrats to get away with that kind of oh, crap. Never. Totally. I mean, I just I'm looking at this watching just saying, didn't they not take any notes whatsoever? A lot of these people had been on the Hill for years. Don't right. they remember the way Republicans handled things? I just I just it's so frustrating. My friend Kurt Bardella who yeah. left the party. But Kurt and I were, were congressional staffers together. He was in a different office. And we oftentimes go back and forth on, on text message during these types of hearings because he worked in the oversight committee at a time right. when Republicans were constantly needling Democrats and going after the Obama administration. Uh, uh, what's his name was the was the chairman back then, Daryl Issa, who okay, yep. did not play around, you know, but right. they weren't they weren't clowns. They weren't right. clowns like they are now, but they were effective and, and they were hard hitting. They pulled no punches. Yep. This group. I'm like, oh, God, like Adam, Adam Schiff did an excellent job handling the Intelligence Committee. Right. And I just wish that <laughs> he could well, chair the Judiciary Committee, too, because he he yeah. just feels like he's more in command. He understands the rules better. He's more knowledgeable of the subject matter. And he uses the gavel when you're chairman. Yeah. And I try to explain this often. You 
are the overlord of that committee. Okay. (laughs) You can do whatever the hell you want. You know, it is not a democracy. So if you want to cut in and, and, and yield yourself more time, you can, if you want to cut off the, the minority because they're acting like jackasses, you can, you gavel them. You could bring the sergeant in arms and have them removed if they don't listen. But, (laughs) but Jerry Nadler is like afraid to assert his authority and you have to, because they act like children. And this is why we saw Nancy Pelosi pull the subtle but effective move right when impeachment was happening. Yes. Of, of she gave Nadler his kind of ceremonial role as as chair of judiciary, but she really transitioned all the substance over to Adam Schiff, and Thank you saw God. the difference. And then back to Nadler, just to let him bang the gavel at the end and say we hereby impeach. But I mean. He's just he look Nadler's just simply not up to the job. I'm sure he's a he seems like a well-intentioned guy, but he's just not he's just not good enough at the job. Right. Um, so I don't know what you do about that on the Capitol. The other thing I want to point out that made me nuts watching <laughs> this was the manner of questioning. Now I get it; it's not a courthouse, it's not a trial, but if you have five minutes and you spend four minutes and forty-two seconds giving a speech. That's not effective. Mm -hmm. If you ask a question that's imprecise and has nine different subparts, as Nadler did, Barr's just going to pick out the little piece of it that he likes best and respond to that. The way you do it, the way I was trained as a prosecutor, is one fact per question, facts, not conclusions, and ask questions that you know what the answer is and they can't hide from. I'll give you Mm -hmm. an example. And I thought Eric Swalwell did a really good job of this in particular. Okay. If you ask Bill Barr, isn't it true, Mr. Attorney General, the reason you interfered in the Roger Stone case is because you were carrying political water for the president? He's just going to – Barr's just going to go, no, not what I was doing. I was just doing facts and law and justice. Mm -hmm. But if you say – if you do it essentially the way Swalwa did it, which by the way, I will note was almost verbatim and I I hope he took this from me but out of my CNN column this week. (laughs) um, Do it this way. You go – Attorney General Barr, during your confirmation hearing, you were asked, would it be a crime if the president exchanged a pardon in return for somebody not testifying? And you said, yes, that would be a crime. Do you remember that? And by the way, funny how Bill Barr had a lot of convenient memory lapses or things he didn't know, but you have it ready. You have the video of it or you have the clip ready to read him. So when he goes, I don't know, I'm not sure, you'd go, here it is. Here it is. Okay. Do you remember that? He's got, he said yes yesterday. He even admitted that. Okay. Are you aware that the president tweeted about Roger Stone and praised him for remaining silent and having guts and bars that I don't read the president's tweets. Okay, throw it up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Here it is, Attorney General Barr, in the unlikely event you actually are not aware of this. Now you see it. Okay, got it. Next, are you aware that Roger Stone stated publicly that he could have turned on the president, but he didn't, and that's why he was expecting some sort of clemency? Same, same, he's got to either say yes or I don't know, and then you, you you put it in his face, and he's got to say yes. And you go, in light of this, have you opened or will you open a criminal investigation? And then when Barr says no, he looks like a jackass. I mean, he just yep. said yesterday, I mean, and, and he did look like a jackass when he said, why should I? Because Swablo set it up perfectly. Yes. But if you just jump right to the conclusion, you're doing political work for president, he's going to go, no, I'm not. Right. A- and you're exactly nowhere. right. Well, you know what, though? Yeah. Eric Swalwell is a former prosecutor. Former prosecutor. True. Indeed. Yep. He, he did it right. He did it right. Um, and there were so many other areas I wanted to see really drilled down on bar that I don't – I mean the SDNY, for example, the removal of the, the, the head of the SDNY where I used to work, 
Um, somebody got him to admit, Barr to admit, that when he, when he made his announcement that Berman would be stepping down, which we learned very quickly was a lie, Barr tried to play this semantic game of that, well, that's what we call it or something. I mean, you got to hammer him on that. I think it you was Nagoose, Congressman Nagoose, who yeah, got under his skin I think skin that's who that. it was. And Val, and, Deming, Val Demings also asked, yep. I think, some questions along those lines, too. Yep. The, the two of them were, were effective. And, and I think the same two con, uh, members of Congress also hit Barr on another important topic, which was this whole campaign that Barr's on, and this really gets my ears pricked up, about massive fraud in, in mail-in ballots, which he has no evidence to support. Mm-hmm. And he said it to NPR the other week. He said it again yesterday. And his only answer is, it's obvious or it's common sense, but you go, what specific evidence do you have that there's massive counterfeiting and massive fraud? And he doesn't have any. And then you say, well, look, Attorney General Barr, your Justice Department charges over 60,000 cases a year. How many cases have you charged during your 18-month tenure here relating to mail-in ballot fraud? And the answer is, I think it's low single digits, if any. And the way I know that is, DOJ keeps its stats. And if you look at them, they have line item breakdowns for the most obscure categories of crime, the categories that have three cases, four cases. And there isn't even a line item for election fraud or vote fraud or ballot fraud. So he's going to be stuck when you ask him that question. And he's going to look like an idiot when you go, how many cases, Attorney General Barr? Out of the 60,000 per year, how many have you charged? And he'll have to say either – he'll say I don't know and go, get me that, please. I want that answer because I think it's zero. But, <laughs> and can you and can you name one? Right, right, <laughs> right? right. And so. you would think that – so he, he tried to deny that he was uh, wor- working basically as Donald Trump's personal election attorney, right. um, which we all know is bullshit because of the, <laughs> his behavior. Um, I think you had a tweet or you made a point <clears throat> where yep. you said that out of 60,000 cases DOJ prosecutes – he yeah. happens to get involved in two, two. involved two of with the president's, uh, you know, yeah. buddies there, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Um, yep. And there was some question about his involvement in the Michael Cohen, um, the Michael Cohen case. He tried right. to claim that he didn't know anything about Cohen getting thrown back into jail, um, yep. which we all I, that's bullshit, too. I'm just speculating. <laughs> of course, he knew trying to say he didn't know. But come on. Um, but uh, you brought up the, the mail and balloting, and I'm glad that you did, because it, it, you were we started started earlier in the conversation kind of alluding to ways that Barr would be an important factor going into the election because this whole idea that Donald Trump uh, won't accept the election results, um, he keeps tweeting out about how mail-in balloting is fraudulent and it's rigged and all of this. I forgot who it was who asked him. Um, can can the president? Will you know? Yeah. Can the president? Oh, change will, can the, the president election? move the date? Right. Yep. And Barr was actually like, "Well, I haven't really looked into that." What do you mean? That is I, an emphatic no. What are you doing? I mean, that one's right in the Constitution. Like they wrote that on parchment with a, right. with a quill pen. Right. I mean, it, and and just so the listeners know, the answer is it. The Constitution says Congress must set a date, a uniform date across the country for the general election. And Congress back in the 1800s passed a statute saying the the, the, the Tuesday after the first Monday of November, which this year is November 3rd, it's up to Congress and Congress alone, not the president. And the fact that Barr's plate played dumb on that or maybe – I don't know. Maybe he actually didn't know, but oh, if so, that's on. embarrassing for an AG. <laughs> I just, but, but, but I mean, why not just, just give an unequivocal? No, he cannot. Right. I mean, what, who, who would that hurt? 
Right. What, what's the harm? The harm is so. that it would upset his master and he didn't right. want to do that. God forbid. Um, which leads me into the other thing that yep. um, Congressman Cicilline did an excellent job of, I think. He's, yep. he's another one who's really good, I think, at it. Um, he he's, is. Both, he's both passionate and knowledgeable and doesn't play around. Um, yep. When he asked, is it ever appropriate for for a president yeah. to accept foreign help in an election? <laughs> I was screaming at the television when Barr paused. Like, oh, like it was that's a, a pause too. five, <laughs> sec, six second pause. And then yep. he was like, well, it depends. And Cicilline came back and was like, is it ever in any right. way appropriate? And then he finally had to say, well, no, it's not. And then he was like, well, I'm sorry you had to struggle to get that answer. That was funny. That was so, great. Quick lesson for, for any young lawyers out there, law students or people thinking about going to law school. What Cicilline did there is a wonderful trial tactic. When you ask a question and you get a bogus answer or a sarcastic answer or a ridiculous answer, ask the exact same question verbatim again, right? Because it may be funny the first time or awkward the first time, but when you ask it again and we saw it with Bill Barr, it's a quick slap to the face and it, it, it basically – it, it, you can't be sarcastic twice in a row. You can't right. hem and haw twice in a row. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. People don't do it. So I watched that and I said, ah, Cicilline knows what he's doing because mm -hmm. I think it was verbatim. I don't think – I think the way he asked it the first time and the second he time was He just added verbatim. ever. Ever. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was very effective. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I wanted to see more of that. Um, yes, if the entire hearing had been like that with relevant right. topics because they – just so people understand – this is the first time Bill Barr has actually been in front of the Judiciary Committee, right? Which in itself is absurd. I mean, mm -hmm. Bill Barr has been attorney general for almost 18 months. I mean, the I would say the number one job of the House Judiciary uh, Committee is to oversee the Justice Department. And it's both of their fault. It's Bill Barr's fault for ignoring their subpoenas, for coming up with bogus excuses, for delaying. And, but it's also Nadler's fault for not – for, for not playing hardball. Nadler should have subpoenaed him early on. And the first time when Bill Barr blew off Jerry Nadler, this was in May of 2019. Um, so a year and whatever, a couple months ago, you remember this, Barr testified in the Senate on, on one day and he was supposed to go into the House the next I day. Remember. And he just no-showed. And what did the House do? What was their strong move? Oh, they held a, a, a hilarious open chair, empty chair meeting, and Steve Cohen ate chicken on the floor of the house and called them a chicken. Great. Uh, very effective. Very very effective right. governance there. What, what Nadler should have done, and if you want to make a ceremony about it, fine, call the media and walk into the courthouse and serve your papers to compel William Barr to comply with your subpoena or subpoena mm -hmm. him and then march into the courthouse and demand expedited review and fight him. Instead – it took over a year more to get him in here. And by the way, Bill Barr, Bill Barr just laughs at Nadler. Like, uh, you know, Nadler was trying to get Bill Barr in for the last several months and Barr, eh, it's COVID. I'm busy with other stuff. And then, and then Barr finally, I think it was early June said, tell you what, I'll show up at the end of July. How's July 28th? That's the next time I have an opening. And Nadler, Nadler said, okay, fine. And what does Barr do the next day? He finds time to sit with Ted Cruz for a right. 90 minute podcast. I know. I mean, I mean it, it, you know, no respect at all. No respect. But it, Nadler doesn't command respect either. Right. Which, and, and this administration knows that, you know, if they smell yeah. blood in the water, they're, they're going to take full advantage of that. Yep. And uh, that's what they've done. I've, I guarantee you, Republicans would have been in front of that courthouse oh, with the subpoena, yep. okay, yep. with the whole stage show um, embarrassing the. I mean, if, if Eric Holder had yep. pulled some shit like that, oh, forget oh. it. Like, I mean, they they held yeah. him in contempt of Congress. 
when Eric Holder right. wouldn't turn over right. documents. Um, documents in the Fast and yeah. Furious case. Never mind. <laughs> I mean, not showing up for a subpoena. That would have been yeah. completely unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, there's just a huge sort of mismatch in how far each side's willing to go. Another example, though, of how abnormal this tenure is um, for for Bill Barr as attorney general. Um, You were on Dan Abrams' Serious XM show. And I listen to Dan all the time. I really like Dan a lot. And I'm really, really sorry to see live PD go. I thought that was an Mm -hmm. awful knee-jerk reaction to what was going on. Um, Everyone knows Mm -hmm. who listens that I come from a law enforcement family. And I'm very pro-law enforcement. But I will also call them out when they don't do the right things. But live PD, I thought, offered a really good look at what what the you know day-to-day um patrol officers deal with and it was it wasn't like cops where it was like a highlight reel of all the most outrageous stuff sometimes three-hour live show was boring because there wasn't much going on you know (laughs) but it was but i just thought that it was too bad but that's um you know that's neither here nor there i'm just saying that because you were just on a show and i and i like him a lot but when you were on his um on his program you were pointing something out that i thought was important because Barr is doing things that is just um, demoralizing the Department of Justice, which used to be above the fray. You know, Maine justice was not politicized. And this administration, which they've done with so many things, including our our courageous men and women in the intelligence community, which is a whole nother discussion. um, But they've, you know, the deep state bullshit that they're talking about and demonizing everyone that's out to get Trump. And, you're, you know, the prosecutors are all a bunch of liberal hacks. And uh, will you please explain to people how that how abnormal all of that really is and, and how demoralizing this has been for DOJ folks, career DOJ people? Yeah. So I'm trying to put myself back in the mind of what, when I was at DOJ and I was there from 04 to 12. So so almost exactly four years under George W. Bush administration and, and four years under the Barack Obama administration. I'm trying to think how it would have felt if either president would have even sent out one of Donald Trump's tweets. I mean, he sent out <laughs> dozens attacking prosecutors, attacking specific cases, attacking judges. It would have been shocking it would have been uh, we wouldn't have even known what to do never mind if it became a regular thing i mean mm-hmm. the, the the way in which the president has overtly politicized the justice department is so different from what we saw in either of those administrations and the, the example i like to give is um I had no idea what anyone's politics are. It's funny now I'll hear that one of my former colleagues, oh, he's up for a big position in the such and such administration. He's, you know, he's going to get a big job in the Obama administration. She's going to get a big job in the Trump administration. Oh, if Biden wins, he might be this. I'm, I'm always like, oh, okay. I, I didn't really know that that, you know, that that person was Republican or Democrat or whatever. But I guess so. Um, and the specific example example I give is we went through about as as major a policy change as you can go through and and a ideological change when we went from Bush to Obama in 08. And I don't even remember in early 09. I don't even remember it. I, I, I joke with Preet and about Preet, but I mean it. 
I knew Preet was coming in as U.S. attorney, but I don't remember the moment Preet took over. I mean, there was no like, <laughs> right. okay, the new guy's here, the Democrat's here, the Democrat appointee is here now, so we're going to be doing this, this, and this different. I mean, it wasn't even a hiccup in the daily business of what we did. It was just we had the holdover from the Bush administration, and then I guess Preet had like a, a little wine and cheese thing or something when he started, <laughs> and it was like, all right, well, change the signature on the bottom of the forms, but back to work. Right, switch, um, the, switch the photos out in the lobby from yeah, Bush. Right. Right, exactly. Obama. <laughs> exactly. And, and that was it. And now what Bill Barr has done, I mean, look, I have to say this for the people who worked it out. Of course, I'm still friends with a lot of them. I think it would, I can't speak for them. I can say it would really bother me if I was on the line. And, and, and but I, I will say this, they all are doing their jobs. I mean, DOJ, it's such a shame because people watch what happened yesterday and they see Bill Barr. And of course, you're the attorney general. You're the most important representative of the department. But please don't think that Bill Barr is representative of the women and men who work in that department, the thousands upon thousands of people, because they are public servants and they don't do politics. They don't play politics. Look at the prosecutors who resigned off the cases in Stone and Flynn. Uh, There's so many people that just do their daily business. So I Look, Barr is doing serious damage to, to, to the Justice Department and will take a while to recover, but it but it will come back. So what's what's next, Ellie? I mean, we can't you can't get rid of him. I mean, yeah. you can. He can yeah. be impeached, but that's never happening. Right. The Senate right. would have to do that. Um, yep. And we all know that that's not going to happen. So we're stuck with this freaking guy through the end of this administration. Hopefully that is sooner than later. Um, If I have anything to say about that and many of my listeners and many other sane people in this country will hopefully root this uh, this this cancer out of the White House and, and, and everywhere else. But what what do people need to pay attention to after, you know, they the Democrats missed a real opportunity to nail Barr, yeah. even symbolically, because like I said, it's not it's not like he's going to resign. There's no shaming these people. But I think it would have been beneficial, at least just for the record, uh, for history, for Barr to have been called to the carpet on so many of the of the things that he's done that are just so outside uh, justice. Um, They focused a lot on what what's going on in Portland and and the misuse of federal officers in very jackbooted thug ways, which is a shame because, like I said, my my husband's a federal law enforcement officer, and right. it, it it hurts my heart to see our guys being put in these situations acting like this. I just it's so fascist. I can't, and I never yeah. thought I would ever be saying this. Um, and it looks now like they're moving the the federal agents out of Portland, and now they're going to distribute them to other cities. So are we going to have a repeat of what's going on there? I mean. That's just it's very scary to me, this this idea of what Trump's America is supposed to look like. Um, But what's next? What should people be paying attention to as far as Bill Barr and as we head into the election, the role he could possibly play? Because, you know, I'm fearful of some of the shenanigans he could potentially be a part of. Yeah. So this is one of the most common questions I get through through CNN and Twitter and everything else is just what what happens to Bill Barr? And and the answer, I'll put it plainly, is not much. Not much can be done because this is why it's so important who becomes attorney general, because so much of that job is dependent on the person who holds it being credible and independent um, and having character because there's really not a lot of black letter law on what the attorney general can or can't do. Look, theoretically, and once someone's got to write a book about how many times this administration has benefited sheerly because of the calendar. So Mm -hmm. theoretically, 
Can an attorney general be impeached? Yes. Is that going to happen here in July heading into August of an election year? No way. Um, you know, theoretically, there are other things you can – well, that's one. I mean if you're expecting Barr to resign, that's not going to happen. If you're expecting Barr to be stripped of his law license, a lot of people seem interested in that idea. I think it's unlikely and if it is going to happen, it's not going to be anytime soon. So if anyone was hoping that at the end of this hearing there would be some catharsis, there there wasn't going to be and there wasn't. So what what can be done? First of all, I agree with what you said. It's important that Bill Barr be on the record for history because we need to know just how deep his his abuses have go, have gone. And I think Democrats not entirely missed, but but didn't fully capitalize on an opportunity to do that yesterday. And by by the way, in all likelihood, that's the last time Barr is going to be testifying in front of this Congress under oath. I mean, right. if Trump wins and Barr comes back, they're going to have to get very they're going to have to get much more serious. So I see this as as there's two roads here. Road one is Trump wins and Barr returns as attorney general, in which case the Democrats just have to get play way harder hardball. They need to get much stronger leadership in Congress. They need to start serving subpoenas. They need to be running into courts. They need to even examine the possibility uh, of reigniting their own inherent contempt power, which has mm-hmm. died from mis- from non-use and way before. This is not now. There's well, this goes back to the, that. That power hasn't been used in almost 100 years. But they need to get much more serious about the ways that they oversee the Justice Department and demand accountability. And by the way, the judiciary has done a good job of pushing back against Justice That's Department true. abuses, right? On the, on the Flynn case, on the Stone case, on the census case. I mean, a lot of things like um, that's that's road number one. Road number two is if Biden wins and there's just a whole new administration, then you, then you're in repairing damage mode. And I think the way that that happens is a combination of restoration of norms, um, meaning not not necessarily passing new laws, although there might be some new laws, and there are there are, that that's another thing that can be pursued is potential legislation hemming in um, the attorney general's power or giving Congress more oversight power. But the first thing that any new attorney general needs to do is call the media in, call the all the employees who work at Maine Justice into the Great Hall, and get behind the podium with the seal of DOJ behind him or her and say this bullshit ends. This is a new administration. We will not play politics. Uh, we will not fudge the truth to the public. We will do our jobs. We will follow the law and the facts. And it makes me crazy when Barr says that because he distorts them so often. Mm-hmm. But I will be all about credibility and independence. That's all that matters here. That's the first thing that that person needs to do. And then and then there's plenty of other sort of repair work that needs to be done. But but again, justice, the Justice Department has taken some heavy body blows here, but, but it will survive. It will outlast the Trump administration and the one that comes after that and the one that comes after that. Let's hope so, my friend, because I worry about what happens if, God forbid, Donald Trump wins re-election again, what happens to our democratic norms and institutions because he has been chipping away at their foundations for the last four years. I I really worry about that. And uh, and that's not being I'm not being melodramatic about it. And and I know Mm -hmm. that I'm not the only one who feels like that. Yeah. Other people. And it's not just the Justice Department. I mean, you know, the intelligence community, the Pentagon, I mean, just every single um, every corner of the government in the executive branch has been poisoned in some way or the uh, some way or another by Donald Trump. And like my good friend Rick Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies, (laughs) including our democracy at this rate, if this or our republic, if this freaking guy gets reelected, in my opinion. It's not going to die. 
It's going to come back. It's withering on the vine right now, though. We're withering. <laughs> it, it is It is so interesting because, I mean, one of the biggest things that Donald Trump has done is break norms. And look, he ran as a norm breaker. He yeah. said, I'm going to go into Washington and I'm going to yeah. clean house. And look, he told us. Some, yeah. Um, sometimes norm breaking can be a good thing and a healthy thing. But boy, he has he has gone way past, uh, I think, I think the point of, of uh, healthy yes. norm breaking. Yes. Yeah. I mean, everything from refusing to turn over his tax returns to putting his daughter and son-in-law in senior positions in the white house to defying every congressional subpoena to openly commenting on DOJ. I mean, I could go on and on yeah. and on. It'll be to in- cozy, interesting to, cozying to see. up to our enemies and dictators and, you I, know, right. and openly defying our, our generals and, and, yeah. uh, you know, just, we could go on, we could go on. That's that could be a whole podcast in and of itself. And as yeah. I as I in the lead into our interview, I talked about how I, I never in my life ever in my life thought that I'd be talking about demon semen and alien DNA in the same conversation about a president of the United States defending a doctor who actually espoused those things. Nobody had that on their freaking bingo card for the Donald Listen, Trump presidency. We, we've had a lot of additions to the lexicon and uh, that's now something that people know what it is. So oh um, he's expanding our vocabulary. Good grief. I can't even say it. I can't I even Oh, Look, I, I'm not I'm not like some prude. I'll say some crazy things, but I just can't say that. I'm sorry. Demon. Demon, demon. <laughs> Listen, Berman, John Berman was having was, you know, leading, I think led off New Day this morning, having fun with it. Oh, my um, God. And Don so. Lemon did, too. You know, I mean, oh, it's, Don's just gonna, so, yeah. it's just so unbelievable that you you just can't yeah. sometimes you just can't believe it. I mean, even even Brian Williams, I, I mean, a lot of people who are very serious journalists are just like, this right. is where we're at, people. Yeah. This is where we're at in 2020. My goodness. Anyway, yep. Ellie Honig, always a pleasure, my friend. Um, <laughs> please follow Ellie on Twitter at Ellie Honig. Um, you've got to write a book. I hope oh. you, you, you've got to write a book. I mean, you do your regular segments on CNN on the weekends. Have they still been going on, though, during COVID? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, the, the crazy, you know, I do. I take you, viewer questions and reader questions yes. every week. And Cross there's exam. still, I mean, you cross exam. It's with Anna Cabrera. We usually do either Saturday or Sunday evening. We've done it every weekend, virtually every weekend since COVID started. And we're getting great questions. I mean, about coronavirus, about obvious, all the usual obvious stuff about DOJ and, and abuses, but it's expanded people. I mean, a lot of questions about Portland and the way federally, I mean, look, there's always really important issues in the law. So send them in through, through CNN. You have to go on, if just do Ellie Honig cross exam CNN and you can send them in. I read every single one of them. I just want people to know that I can't possibly answer them all, but I read them all. They're great. That's good. And also Ellie and I, we are uh, always talking about Room Raider for those who <laughs> follow us on Twitter. Room Raider is because it's called Rate My Skype Room. It's a Twitter account that started a couple months ago rating people's um, home shots because everyone's yeah. doing remote shots from their houses. So it's become kind of a funny game for those of us in the media to get our <laughs> see what our rating is going to be, what Room Raider thinks. And I, thank God, I got an eight on my first one. One and a nine on the next one, and yeah. poor Ellie got hit kind of hard. You got a tough, you got a tough score L- there. Let the me beginning. say this: <laughs> I got a six out of ten, and that was charitable. I mean, my room <laughs> is is not good. I w- I probably deserved like a four. I mean, I, but they, I if they like you though, they'll shop. give you, they'll handicap you. <laughs> 
I know. Well, he he is biased. I, mean, I know. He, I know. If, if he likes the analyst, he gives you a couple more yeah, points. And, and if, you know, there's people who have nice home setups, but but are but are complete wackos. And, and right. he, he'll blast them and give them a two, even right. if they have a great setup. Um, I think I got I think I got two or three bonus points because the, the guy likes me. But uh, or I don't even know exactly who it, I know one of them is a guy. I think yeah. there's multiple people. Yeah. But it, listen, it makes it made me super self-conscious. I I actually <laughs> I actually up my game. You I did? changed which which room in my house I'm using because and it looks better. I will it does. say it is. It is much, much better. And if yeah. you go to Ellie's Twitter, you'll see that he was doing an outside shot for something yeah. in, in his in his shorts and his blazer. Can I just clarify something? <laughs> I am wearing pants in that <laughs> short <laughs> because <laughs> they're, they're, they're sticking out from under my shirt, but only an inch or two. And people thought I was sitting there with no shirt. I'm like, no, there's I a thought person so interviewing me. Too. I thought you had, I thought you had like draws on and that you were yeah, trying no, to no, be no, funny. They're, they're short. <laughs> and then I looked Look, closer. I literally zoomed in. I was like, okay, he's got, cause you were like too much leg. And I'm like, what's so, happening? <laughs> sometimes they ride up a little higher than, than uh, you realize it's physics. That's so um, funny. It's so yeah. This is what we do, people. This is the this is the behind the scenes exactly. of what of being on air. It's not as sexy and glamorous as it <laughs> appears all the time. Trust me. Indeed. Indeed. Ellie, thank you so much. Stay sane, my right, friend, Jeff. and uh, I hope we can get together soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Be well. You too. Again, another thank you to my friend, Ellie Honig. I just love him. We have so much fun. We could talk for hours and hours, especially about Jersey stuff. Anyway, um, that's it for this week. Uh, Next week, my other good friend, Paul Begala, will be here about his new book, You're Fired, How to the Perfect Guide to Defeating Donald Trump. And um, it's a fun conversation and it's an excellent book, which is coming out on August 4th. So stay tuned for next week's episode with Paul Begala. And um, whatever else, crazy, this happens in the chaos chronicles between now and then. (laughs) But stay safe, everybody, and I'll see you next week.